Coming up on the Dilaparam All-Rounder podcast, the Masters 2019, the one and only, the redemption story, Tiger Woods. And there's no one better to talk about all things golf uh, than one of my good friends, Christian McDowell. I work with him. He's a great lawyer and he's also a great golfer. I think this story about Tiger Woods and his redemption is a very inspirational and motivational story. It teaches people not to give up. And so while we do speak in some technicalities about golf, hopefully the lesson is that you all can achieve anything you want if you put your mind to it. Just a heads up as to future episodes, we are also going to be looking at the state of origin, New South Wales, Queensland, the year that New South Wales finally broke the drought. We'll also be looking at rugby and the English Premier League and much, much more. If there's anything you want me to cover, please let me know. As I mentioned before, I love it when you're listening and I love it when you're downloading because it means my numbers go up. So keep listening and keep downloading. Keep subscribing wherever you get All Things Podcast. Welcome to the Dilaparam All-Rounder podcast. It is the 1st of September. We are recording at 7.05 p.m. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dilip. Thanks for having me. In another life, if you could have been a superstar athlete, what sport would it have been? I've probably given this an irrational amount of thought <laughs> over the years, um, particularly the more uh, uh, the deeper I get into my current career, I look back and think, oh, what could have been? If I had to choose, I think it would come down to either basketball or NFL. Probably basketball because the career length is typically longer, injuries are less severe, um, and, and most importantly, the salaries are significant. I'm surprised you didn't say golf. You're a great golfer. <laughs> I think golf would be a lot of fun, but it's an individual sport. There's no salaries. So if you have a terrible year, you know, it, it, it does sound like the mental toll that players have yeah. on the tour take is can be devastating. And if you don't make the tour, you can grind out your whole life being on the Corn Ferry Tour or one of those yeah lower level tours and if you don't make it um i just can't imagine how much of a struggle that would be no context but who's the goat tough question probably controversial lebron james you're not wayne gretzky you mean you're a canadian yeah that's that's i mean he didn't <laughs> he didn't come to mind i think I, I i did grow up following hockey a lot um but i've sort of moved away from it um you know physically are approximately being yeah. in Australia now, <laughs> as opposed to Canada. It's uh, hard to catch hockey games over here, but um, basketball is a bit more popular, so that's more front of mind. Yeah, uh, Wayne Gretzky. I mean, you bring up a good point, and um, the, the one thing I think about when you when you bring up sort of, you know, players from the past or old school players. I do get the feeling that a, a lot of the players that they would have been competing against were not you know, conditioned at the same level that professional mm. athletes are now. I mean, I feel like professionals now, you don't get lucky and become a professional. Yeah. You have to really commit to it. Whereas in the past, 
um, you know, people would have other jobs mm. and those all-stars are playing against, you know, plumbers or, you know, sparkies who work <laughs> on the weekends, things like that. I think the GOAT debate nowadays has been framed influenced a lot through just media discussion. And now anytime they use the word GOAT, it's always in an NBA context. And so anytime I say GOAT, I think people think immediately of Jordan and LeBron. When I think of the GOAT, I think of someone who dominated from the get-go. That's why I don't think Tom Brady's in that conversation. You know, He's a six-round draft pick. Exactly. Okay, I take it. That's a fair point, and it's your opinion, and you're entitled <laughs> to it. Embrace debate. That takes us to the topic of the day, golf, particularly Masters and Tiger. I think for years, a lot of people have viewed golf as a sport for the elites, a sport unattainable to most. And that's certainly the view I had when I was a youngster. I played a lot of cricket and tennis and had no interest in golf, maybe just watching it on TV. I think the emergence of Tiger Woods in the late 90s and early 2000s changed that view, certainly from a viewing perspective. Uh, I started watching more golf. And even though I wasn't playing it at the time, I was just interested to see how this superstar was able to play on a golf course because he seemed to be dominating. Golf's an interesting sport. It's all about hand-eye coordination. It's all about using your body. It's all about trying to hit the ball as few times as possible and get it in the hole. It's a sport played over 18 holes usually. And the objective is the better you are, the less shots you need to hit, which is kind of counterintuitive, but that's how it is. It's a sport that's frustrating to most. I think every time I play, I leave frustrated, but also excited to play the next time I do. So I'd say it's a sport that COVID really popularized because it was the one sport that you could play and still have some separation from your teammates. And it's become one of the most popular sports in the world as a result. Okay, so Christian, when I say the word Augusta, what's the first thing you think about? The pinnacle of golf. I think of a few different things, if I'm being honest. I think, I think Jim Nance. Yep. The voice of the Masters, the voice of golf. I think about the par three tournament and the honorary starters. That I think that the Masters, probably out of all the tournaments in golf, does the best job of honoring its past winners. Yeah, there's such pageantry to the whole build up of the tournament. Uh, they have the former's champions dinner. They've got yeah. The, the women's amateur tournament, everything they do, they do right. The even the the app that they put out for yes. the tournament is elite. Like, you know, you'll it's the get the best app. Exactly, everyone says it too. Yeah, I mean, other events you'll get the Olympics might have an app or something like that, which is a much larger event worldwide. But the Masters just they they do it right. So when I think Augusta as well, I think of the fact that being a member there. There's no application process, but apparently I'm told if you did apply you or if you did ask to be a member, your chances of becoming a member go down or diminish significantly. Included in that membership were a number of very famous individuals. So you had Bill Gates, Condoleezza Rice, Warren Buffett, and I think... None of who I understand play any golf. No, <laughs> I, I think those memberships are wasted on those uh, on those individuals. I mean, I did read a story about the Live Chairman Al Rumayan, who when they were trying to negotiate the um, integration of Live and PGA, he said, "One thing I really want is a Masters membership," and that was one thing they couldn't give him. I, I can imagine. Yeah, that's one thing money cannot buy you. And, and <laughs> 
I think through the tournament and TV rights and things like that, I'm not sure, you know, what sort of financial situation or setup they have, but I think they're sitting on a lot of cash. The Masters itself out of the four majors, it's the smallest field out of the four major championships. It officially remains an invitation event. And I think we were talking about this earlier this week and we were talking about how the qualifying criteria determines who's in the field. And it's a very interesting qualifying criteria. It's somewhat different to the other majors, but any previous winner gets an automatic entry for life if they choose to. So you could be, you know, if Jack Nicholas, I think he's around 90 now. If he wanted to play, he technically could play and compete in the tournament. I think they automatically include the uh, previous five year winners of each other major tournament. And then they go through the PGA list who might've won in the last few years and then who finished top 12 in the masters the previous year. And then they ultimately find a selection of players that get invited to play. That's probably a good sort of transition into the topic, which is the 2019 Masters. And so the 2019 Masters, it was the 83rd tournament or 83rd edition of the Masters tournament. And as usual, betting favorite in 2019 was no one else other than Rory McIlroy. He was actually the betting favorite at seven to one. And you had Dustin Johnson, another favorite, Justin Rose, who was actually number one in the world oh, yeah. at the time, and Tiger Woods right behind it at the start of the season you sort of gauge where all these players are going to sit I, I think they themselves look forward to this event as you know the start their first major of the season um obviously a lot if not all of the talk was about tiger coming into this in 2019 i think personally i was falling back in love with golf from a personal perspective i did play a little bit when I just gone through uni. So I was playing a little bit during 2009, 2010, 2011. Obviously from Tiger's standpoint, he had his personal incidents in 2009, which basically meant from that for a whole decade, he was a competitive golfer, but wasn't able to win any of the major tournaments and was winning very sporadically. And we'd seen that he'd had a lot of injuries accrue over time particularly due to his sort of very physical training regimen. And a lot of people were saying that Tiger was no longer going to win anymore. And I mean, there was a lot of chat before he was on 14 majors for a long period of time. There was chat that he would easily surpass Jack Nicklaus's 18 major record. But I think at 2019, people had basically given up on that hope. Yeah, I think everyone was just happy to see him sort of finish near the top of the leaderboard and expectations of him finishing at the top as he normally did, they just weren't there anymore. Um, I mean, I think a, a few journalists were trying to make a name for themselves by yeah. saying he's got no shot, he shouldn't be playing in these tournaments, he may as well retire. And I, I think he's the type of player that when he hears those sort of things, yeah, th that just drives him to prove them wrong. Exactly. And I mean, he did win tournaments, Tiger, in 2012, 2013, but obviously nothing that he most coveted, which is the major tournaments. Day one was an interesting day. Day one saw a lot of new stars come to the fold and some old ones as well. So you had Bryson DeChambeau and reigning PGA Championship and US Open champion Brooks Kepka basically firing away from the start. Both hit six under par for, the, um, for day one. And I think Bryson was looking like this was perhaps his tournament to win. He hadn't won a major at that point. He still, um, I think he won the US Open after that. And Brooks was coming in as the person in form, dominating the world with, you know, just very dominating performances at the US Open and the PGA tournament. 
after day one, I think nobody ever comes to firm conclusions about who's going to win. But Brooks was really looking like he was there to he was there to stay. Yeah, that's around the time where you know he steps into a major and he's there to win. Um, if it's not a major, maybe not so much. But he, yeah, he, re- he was really turning it on at that point. Um, and, and it's funny looking back, you, you sort of you realize how these storylines have developed with uh, DeChambeau and Kepka both being in the mix. Yeah, and then going down the road, you you, you remember how they started to hate each other. You've Do you got- think they actually hated each other or was it for a little bit of just TV entertainment? I think Brooks hated DeChambeau legitimately for a short period. And I think DeChambeau being the goofy, nerdy guy <laughs> uh, didn't really realize what he was doing to annoy Brooks so much. I agree. I mean, I saw an interview with him recently and someone was asking him about taking the pin out or leaving it in. And he, instead of just saying why he, you know, or how he likes to take the pin out or leave it in, he says, oh, well, it all depends on the coefficient of restitution <laughs> of the flag. And, and depending on that, I decide whether to. And it's, look, what, what do you run tests on the, the pins? I think he does. <laughs> I think he does. Well, I mean, he didn't say it in this at this year's tournament, but I, was it 21 or 22 where he came out with, for me, a, a par score is a 66 birdie every par five and if i don't hit a 66 then i'm disappointed and that sort of messaging has hurt him down the track because anytime he doesn't play well at the masters he's constantly reminded of what he said back then and you know to his defense all he was saying was that i set high standards for myself and i you know i have high expectations of my own play but sometimes those comments or thoughts are best left to you know your own internal thoughts and you just work on yourself. So day two saw five players, all major champions, share the lead. You had Jason Day and the emergence of Francesco Molinari, both scoring very well. Louis Ustazen <laughs> playing very well. And Dustin Johnson, Tiger Woods, Xander Shoffley. Basically what you had was you had these collection of stars that people knew about emerging to the top. Definitely. And, and one of the things that stands out to me going back and sort of watching some of the highlights recently is in the second round, there was a 30-minute rain delay. And uh, I think Tiger, um, some people had the rain delay. Some people were finished by then. I know Tiger was affected by that. And it's just amazing how these guys can be playing so well, have to sit out for 30 minutes for a rain delay. Yeah. They come back into the round, and it doesn't affect them at all. And I just think of myself, you know, if I'm playing behind a slow group and I have to wait on a tee for two <laughs> extra minutes... I get up to hit the ball and I shank it like I've never swung a club before. Yeah. It's just amazing how these guys are so locked in once they step up to the ball and, you know, a delay here, a delay there. It's like it never happened. So at the end of day two, you had a master's record of 65 players making the cut. And I think we were talking, and you had three amateurs, and we were talking about how the cut line is decided. And what I actually found out was that the masters used to incorporate a 10-stroke rule for the cut which was that any player within 10 strokes of the lead would make the cut. They subsequently changed the rule to, I think it was the top 50. Uh, And that was introduced or implemented uh, around 2020. Yes, just after 2020. And so the rule slightly changed in terms of the cut line. I didn't realize that. Uh, That's interesting that the, the cut was decided like that a while ago. So day three saw the emergence of Francesco Molinari basically separating himself from the rest of the pack. He was part of a five-way tie for the lead at the start of the round. It also saw the emergence of Tony Finau, 
a player who has not yet today won a major, but has been involved in a number of close, close calls at the majors and also PGA tournaments. Yeah, I like him. It's also uh, interesting going back and looking at this is uh, Victor Hovland was the one of the amateurs who made the cut for the weekend. And, you know, you think about how he's playing now uh, and then him being uh, an amateur back then. It's amazing how, how these players develop. Um, I mean, golf is one of those sports where you know, you can sort of hit your peak at what, 35, 45, yeah. you know, that still gives me hope one day. <laughs> yeah. We haven't hit our peak. Yeah, I'm far from it. When I rewatched the final day, Christian, the one thing I I took away was that if you watch the first nine, first 10 holes, Molinari looks razor sharp. He was making a lot of putts to save par, to really keep his lead intact and you would have walked away thinking well he's going to take this away because he doesn't seem like he's crumbling under the pressure i think fowder described it very well tiger was playing it like a marathon he was just waiting for the others to fall away and that's all he needed to do that day because he just he was very consistent he played good shots even when he was playing poor shots his next shot was always a great recovery shot and kept him in the hunt and in the end that was all he needed to to win yeah, I think, I mean, I watch these pros play and I, I tell myself, oh, you know, I'm going to play like that. I'm just going to play for par, you know, make, you know, tap in par putts yeah. is what you're looking for. If you can save par here and there, then it's a great round. Instead, I go out there and trying to hole out every chip from 80 meters and, it's and an ego battle. it over the, yeah. the green instead. But what day four saw was the lead was actually shared by a lot of different players throughout the day. You had a lot of people coming close within one shot of the lead in the back nine. You had people like Xander Shoffley, Molinari, Kepka, Finau, Cantlay. All of these guys who are now, I would call them stars of the game, they all had a chance to win, even Dustin Johnson. Mm-hmm. He, was in, he was in the mix the whole time. And yes, the commentary and the crowd were all there to support their man, Tiger Woods. Um, he's clearly the most popular golfer and he was clearly the most popular golfer at that time in 2019, but there was no, it was no guarantee that he was going to win that tournament. There were too many other players that had a good shot, but just didn't have enough to win it that day. I mean, I feel bad for Molinari. I mean, all those other players you named, they've got big fans backing them. I just don't know anybody. That's a Molinari fan. (laughs) I don't think even anyone in Italy. (laughs) They were probably all supporting Tiger. The media, unsurprisingly, was glowing and effusive in celebrating Tiger's win. It was regarded as one of the greatest sporting achievements. And, you know, people often have a, a present day bias that everything that happens now is the most important and the most celebrated. But three-time Masters champion Nick Faldo, who was commentating for CBS at the time, he called it the greatest scene in golf, um, which, and I think he was talking about the scene where Tiger embraced his children after he just putted in on the 18th. Jim Nance said, and he, he's, he's very eloquent with his words, but he said, you know, I never thought we'd see anything that could rival the hug with his father in 1997 yeah. when Tiger won his first Masters but we just did that hug with his children. If that doesn't bring a tear to your eye and you're a parent, you're not a human. That's pretty good. What, what Tiger's win showed was that it actually, it was a mainstream media topic. Um, people that don't like golf 
suddenly were talking about golf because Tiger was playing and Tiger was winning and, he, and it brought golf back to the spotlight. Coming up next, we are going to look at top five moments and some segments and categories. Would you believe that? Most disappointing performances and a whole lot more. See you right after this. Oh, he's long and left. And he's right at the second cut. Burn, this is extremely difficult. This is one of the toughest pitches on the entire place here. Welcome back. Christian, we're going to look at the top five moments of the 2019 Masters. These are obviously subjective memories. And first one, Tigers, par three, on the 16th, almost hole in one. Yeah. I thought that shot, the moment, the stage, the setting, the context, If it was so close to holding it in. You had Vern Lundquist, the famous commentator, who commentated Tiger when he made that famous chip in 2005. Yeah. It was a poignant moment and really signaled where he was going to win the Masters because he'd separated from Molinari. He's got a plethora of highlights from that specific hole over his career. It's amazing how, I mean, I would love to be able to talk to him and think, you know, when you step up to that hole, are you thinking, let's make a highlight here? So, <laughs> you know, it just seems like that hole there's something about it i mean everyone seems to yeah i mean i think if i were going to play a hole at augusta you'd want to play that i think so yeah i mean i want to play the mole it's a great moment because the ball lands and then it just rolls down it's slow it's great for tv it's great for setting up the anticipation it was a fantastic moment yeah totally and actually bryson DeChambeau in in this tournament he had a hole in one there he did i was i was that was going to be my third moment but it wasn't <laughs> just bryson justin thomas as well justin thomas as well um i mean like the fact that those two players hit hole in ones in 2019 on day four if they're in the running can you imagine what that would have meant to the competition but the fact that they both hit hole in ones i thought it was a great moment and it just shows that hole 16 it's the happening hole. It's where everyone wants to be because of that opportunity to get a hole in one. It's also interesting. I mean, it's hard for you to pick this up or, or for the, the broadcast to show this. But um, when I went back and watched and Brooks gave some commentary. So he's on the 17th tee when Tiger hits that shot on 16. Brooks sees where it lands from the tee. He can't see the hole, but he sees where Tiger's ball lands and thinks in his head, that's where you need to land it for the ball to go in the hole. So he's thinking, the crowd's roaring. He's thinking, damn, did Tiger just hole this out for yeah. a hole in one here? Yeah. And he's thinking all of this while he has to hit his shot on the 17th tee. It would be so distracting. My number two, this is an interesting one, and I'm not sure if you would have had it. It was Tiger's almost putt on the ninth, which for a birdie. So... It was, I think, the ninth hole. Tiger was 50 feet away, and he'd spent 
eight minutes studying this green and his ball was perched at the edge of the green. The hole was on the other side, but it, you basically had to putt over this ridge and then allow the ball to just roll down and apply no pace. So you basically had to play a putt for 12 feet, but it would eventually go 50 feet. And so Jim Nance, Nick Faldo were both saying, you know, Tiger was looking like he wanted to make the putt and it looked almost impossible that he would do it. He didn't make the putt, but he finished one foot, like he was one foot out of making one of the most outrageous putts on the ninth. And the, I think the stat was that after he hit the ball, it took 23 seconds for the putt, for the ball to stop. Crazy. Yeah, it's amazing how the professionals are able to you know, vision those putts. I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter how much you practice every one of those long putts from a, you know, a weird position. There's no practicing for that. That's pure imagination, pure feel. Yes. You can't, you, I mean, you wouldn't practice that. You would just, as you say, it's just comes down to pl having hours playing for years and years and practicing and understanding the green. I think it's just a lot of it is Tiger knowing how the master's greens work and yeah. how quick they are, how much pace he needs to put on it. It was unbelievable. For three for me was what we called it. We said Bryson and Justin Thomas hitting those hole in ones. So that was number three. Four was the winning moment. I thought Tiger hugging his son, Charlie, celebrating that win with his mum, his daughter, and his, you know, his girlfriend at the time. It was a, it was a really poignant moment. And, you know, that's where Nance made that, made those comments I just thought, you know, that that really showed the love he had for his children. And, you know, Charlie's a up-and-coming golfer. He, he would have seen his dad winning a major. It might have inspired him. Yeah, it'd be amazing if Charlie, you know, even lives up to half of the expectations that he has for him, for that the, the world has for him. It's but, difficult. I mean, if he can be a competitive golfer, uh, that would be amazing to see. Maybe the difficulty that sons of famous stars I have is just do they have the motivation and the drive to compete at the top level when everything is handed to them on a silver you know silver spoon yeah i think it's easier for players who are in sports where your physical attributes are you know half the battle so mm. say you're a basketball player a um a nfl player if you are you know six five two hundred and whatever kilos then you know you're halfway there and then you just have to be athletic and things like that with golf it's you know very technical and that doesn't necessarily transfer no so i mean and also everyone thinks oh you know you're good at golf you're a scratch golfer you're a plus two you're a plus five that doesn't you're not even sniffing professional golf at that level number five for me it's Molinari's gaffes at 12 and 15. <laughs> In a top five moment, I put it there because, you know, it's a great scene. It's, uh, you know, he was there to win it. He was playing well up to that point. He had shown no signs that he was, you know, gonna, gonna miss those shots as badly as he did. And it just shows that come Masters, come day four, the pressure ratchets up and even the best will miss. Yeah, I mean, anytime you hit a ball in the water, that that's going to get in your head. And I mean, to, to hit that sort of shot 
at that time, you know, leading the Masters, coming in, you know, on the back nine, that's not what you want. And I think, I mean, it's hard to see from the broadcast, but those last two groups, what was it? There was four balls yeah. hit in the water. Yeah. So you had Molinari, you had Brooks, you had Poulter. Poulter. Yeah. Um, you may have had three, one more. Yeah. Three balls of the last two groups went in the water there. You know what really amazes me when they hit the water is they have to play that shot that still needs to cross the water. That's not an easy... I'd, I'd rather go back to the tee. Exactly. But when they do hit that shot, it's like a 60 or 70 meter shot. They're always next to the pin on their next shot. Um, yeah, they, they just don't. I mean, they're not going to get to the top of the, the leaderboard by exactly. hitting two bad shots in a row. No. And I think Tiger, that's sort of how he built his career is by hitting miraculous shots from mm -hmm. a bad position. I think I, I saw a funny video of him and he says, you know, most of the time he's swinging 80%. He said, you know, almost every swing of his is at 80%. And then it immediately cut to a highlight reel of him. And it looks like he's swinging <laughs> out of his shoes, trying to hook the ball around some tree or over water and it's well, swinging 120%. Well, sometimes I don't believe Tiger when he gives those snippets or insights. I mean... No divots? No divots. <laughs> there's like... Well, if um, if you don't know what we're talking about, there's a video with... I think it's a video for TaylorMade. Tiger's a TaylorMade player. Scotty Scheffler's a TaylorMade player. And Scotty Scheffler in the YouTube video, it could be rehearsed or it could be natural. He just says, you know, how do you play these sort of chip shots? So, and playing well, and Tiger says, when I'm playing well, I don't hit a divot or I don't make a divot. And Scotty is just very confused because all, all golfers are taught that, you know, you have a divot that's in front of the ball and straight line. And Tiger was just saying, no, he's in this very matter of fact, serious tone. I don't hit a divot. And then we, that's clearly not true. Yeah. Because he takes some of the biggest divots. Yeah. And there's, I, I specifically went on YouTube and I said, Tiger divots. And it's like <laughs> a video of Tiger playing his best golf and taking these massive divots, you know, almost half a meter in front of the ball. Yeah. And so it's just Tiger having a joke, having a laugh. Um, he was, that's his personality. But yeah, I, I found that I don't believe him when sometimes people ask him for advice and he gives advice. But it's funny. So that's him sort of joking around and he gets away with it. But if DeChambeau tried to make oh. that same joke, <laughs> it would not have played. It's outside the top five, but I'd say as an honorable mention, I had the post round interview with um, Nance and Faldo. There's a YouTube clip on it. It's worth, well worth watching. The sense of relief and achievement that you see on Tiger's face. He's an older, it's an older, more mature Tiger. And I thought Nance did a really great job of recognizing the moment and appreciating Tiger for what he'd just done. And, I, you know, credit to Nance and Faldo for that. I think the Masters above, above every other tournament, they just have a great sense of, you know, when someone's achieved something great, they really know how to celebrate it. In terms of my highlights, uh, going back watching uh, some of the um, the coverage, one stands out to me, Adam Scott. So this is just a random shot. And I mean, I think a lot of people will debate who's got the nicest swing. Is it is it Rory? I think Adam Scott is up there as well in terms of just, it just looks nice, seems technically flawless. Is he your favorite? I mean, the one thing, and, and 
I don't know if I'm alone here. He would be one of my favorites if he used a normal putter. Yes. I mean, there's something about... Something not right. Yeah, and he's It feels just... like you're cheating. Well, I don't think he's ever been known for being a great putter, and yet he still uses these yeah. odd putters. I think he was one of the players that was affected when they changed the rules where you can't... Um, what is it? Ground the club against your chest with the yeah. long putter. And he still uses long putters. I guess the technique is a, a bit different, but I mean, anyway, putting that aside, so he's on the 15th hole, par five. I'm is not this sure. final day? Uh, no, I think it was early in the round, okay. but yeah. I mean, just looking at these shots, it was just so picturesque, like every image from Augusta is. And he's sitting probably 250 plus meters wow. out. He's got a two iron in his hand. It's over water to this, wow. you know, green that's basically surrounded by water with a two iron in his hand. I mean, I would have been better off just putting it down the, the slope of the fairway and, and getting a bit closer. Your probably the would safest have gone option. Than the two iron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They may as well be the same club for me. <laughs> Um, but anyway, that was just a shot that stands out for me. And in terms of that whole 12 drama with everyone going in the water, I think what stands out for me after there is Brooks followed that up with an eagle shortly after yes. and canceled out that double bogey he had. So that put him back in the running. And not long after that, he had another eagle putt opportunity that he missed. Wow. And if he would have yes. sank that... He would have been in the lead. Yeah. And I mean, he had another opportunity on the 18th to put the pressure on Tiger as well if he would have made that putt um, for birdie on 18. But they're just, I mean, I guess every tournament's like that, but there's a lot of turning points. You know, if one break goes a different way, exactly, the the leaderboard ends up completely different. It was a tournament that was had an abundance of um, top five moments. But I think we, I, you know, I think we hit a lot of the, the key moments there. I'm pretty happy with that, Christian. Um, we're going to hit some segments and categories. The first one I want to do with you is, would you believe that? I suppose you will believe everything that I'm about to say because it's got to be true. But the first <laughs> one I had was there were 10 players who either had a piece of the lead or were within one shot of the lead at some point on Sunday. Now, I feel like that has got to be a record. That's what made it such a good tournament to watch. I mean those tournaments where someone pulls away and he's, you know, six shots clear on, on no Saturday. Fun. It's hard to be excited to tune in on a Sunday. And, and I mean, you're hoping for him to play terribly and that just yeah. rarely ever happens. It never happens. Yeah. So when you've got players. Yeah. When they're all, you know, scratching and clawing at each other's backs that makes for a good tournament at 43 woods was the second oldest masters champion in history one of only two players to win the masters in three different decades 14 years since his last masters victory would you believe this this was the first time that tiger won a major where he wasn't leading into the final day i don't know what that means what that says about tiger but it probably, the first thing it says is that he just dominated every major he played. It was almost, it was not a, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a fair fight when he would win a major because he was always in the lead coming to day four and would just solidify his position. But this was the first time he didn't have the lead and he won. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, 
it, it, it did make it more interesting in that case because, you know, as you say, when Tiger's in the lead going into a Sunday, it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to win. Yeah. Whether or not he's one stroke ahead or seven, ten strokes ahead. So I think that that made it more exciting knowing, oh, this is anybody's game at this point. Exactly. And you still get to root him on. I'll call it embrace debate, but the first person on the hot seat I want to point out is uh, very own Rory McIlroy. It's 2019, so Rory probably didn't have the same pressure that was, you know, put on him that he needed to win a Masters, but he was coming in as a betting favorite. He wasn't the world number one. Justin Rose was at the time, but people were still saying that Rory needed the Masters to really crown his career. He hadn't won a Masters yet. He'd come close, and he was on the hot seat. People expected him to do things, and he didn't flunk out. He, you know, he made the cut, but it just wasn't, enough to compete really on on the sunday yeah i mean it sort of feels like he's in the same position now where he's just sort of teetering on that level of you know getting back to where everyone thinks he is meant to be i mean that's the thing everyone sort of wants to follow in tiger's footsteps and it's just unachievable especially in the game of golf i mean you can have a few good years, a few good tournaments, but sustaining that over a length of time, it just doesn't seem like that's something that's going to occur commonly. No, he probably has the most aesthetic golf swing. At the end of the day, it's driving is not everything, and um, his game is very strong. Question to you, Dilip. If you could take one skill in golf, whether it be the one of the best putters in the world or one of the best drivers in the world which one are you choosing if i wanted to score well if my handicap wanted to be as good as it can be i'd pick best putter because i feel like a lot of people lose um lose strokes in putting but from a selfish ego standpoint (laughs) it's got to be drive because if you hit a 350 meter drive when you're on standing on the first tee or the 10th tee and you've got a crowd behind you yeah, it doesn't matter you three putt yeah nobody cares nobody sees your final putt where you actually missed the green and went off the green and you've you know you're seven putted they only care about that 350 meter shot that shows that you are an outstanding golfer so I couldn't that's my more. answer i'm not sure if it's an answer i sort of gave you both answers but no i mean the, i agree completely <laughs> with that I think I'd have to choose driving as well because I also feel like driving is an athletic move that would take much more time to develop if you put work into it, whereas putting is more technical and you can practice that. Exactly. The best putters at a golf club are usually the elder statesmen who are in their 60s and they've putted on those greens for 40 years. but. A couple of points I want to test with you, Christian. The first one was, I always feel as if golfers shouldn't have the assistance of a caddy when they're playing in uh, professional tournaments. And the reason I say that is, shouldn't the mark of a good golfer also be his his or her ability to read a green, to understand where to hit the ball, to understand where the pin is? Shouldn't they be questions that the golfer him or herself should be thinking about and not have the assistance of someone else? I do agree with that. And especially when there are some tournaments now where the caddies are allowed to carry rangefinders. And yeah. so you wonder, what really is the caddy doing? I mean, and what really bothers me is when 
you see a player having a conversation with a caddy, the player hits a club and it's, you know, short or long. And he looks at the caddy as if it's <laughs> completely his fault, as if he has no idea how far he hits his clubs. And it's 100% on the caddy to choose the correct club. And he's as if he's hitting it blindly. Exactly. And no golfer ever hits, like no professional golfer ever hits a club that they didn't want to hit. Yeah. They wouldn't accept it. And so, I don't know. I it's They will never change that rule. It's in place for a reason because golf, you know, at that level, golf courses can be tricky. They can be challenging. They require a little bit of analysis. But I would have thought that if you didn't have a caddy and you were forced to maybe carry your bag, that it would really differentiate those golfers who have an analytical mind to the sport and understand green reading and, you know, understand distance control because then it would force golfers to have to think about these things before they hit a shot rather than just rely on someone else who isn't making the shot for them. Christian, the final point in hot seat embrace debate for me was whether this was the greatest golf win. And I had initially compared it to whether it was better than Jack Nicklaus's 1986 win, which was when he was 46 years old. In 86, Nicklaus came. He wasn't a favorite to win. He came from behind. It's another 86 tournament where the shark, Greg Norman, capitulated on the final day. A lot of people said he choked that day. I mean, for me, it's hard to, dis- it's hard to differentiate between the two. One was done in 1986. One, Tigers was, I think he had a lot more pressure on him. He hadn't won for a long time. He wasn't a favorite to win. He'd had a lot more media exposure. I think there was a lot, you know, Anytime he played, the spotlight was on him. So, you know, maybe there's a present day bias here that says that Tiger's win was more important, but it's hard to differentiate the two. They're both Masters wins and they're both greats of the game. Yeah, I think, as you say, those events back in the 80s, those people didn't have the media pressure on them. They rock up to a tournament and they play. They're not being bombarded with questions about their past they're not being photographed (laughs) the second they walk out of their it's a good point room i mean i know myself if i'm you know got a lot on my mind if i'm you know anxious with certain tasks at work or you have a an argument with your partner and you think oh i'm just gonna go play golf and relax you it's hard you can't turn it off necessarily like if you have any lingering thoughts in your brain it comes out on the golf course. So the fact that Tiger is able to perform when he's under scrutiny about every aspect of his life at this stage, not only that, but he's being questioned about his injuries. And I mean, I can't imagine if you've got an injury and someone asks you about your injury the second you're going to try and play some sort of sport, (laughs) that's got to linger in your head as well. So, I mean, I've heard... People say that this is one of the the biggest sort of comeback stories in sports, and I mean, I I find it hard to come up with something better. Something better, yeah. I want to think about one thing, which is, Ma- we all know that the champions of the Masters tournament all come together for a Masters dinner before the Masters event, and the usually the last year's champion hosts the event and they put on a spread that is unique to them. 
And so if you were a master's champion in a, you know, it could be in this life, it could be in the next life. What is your dinner spread? So I've had to give this a fair amount of thought, Dilip, um, and it would be very hard to choose what meal would be served sort of to the other champions on your behalf. And I think you've got to pay homage to your your background, your culture, your, you know, yeah. your country that you tend to represent in your sport. I mean, they always put up your flag where you're from on all the leaderboards and things like that on the broadcast. So obviously got to pay homage to Canada. So in terms of the starter, the appetizer, I think I'd start off with some maple glazed salmon tartare pancakes. <laughs> wow. So you've got the maple, obviously, um, salmon you can get from the Canadian rivers. So it's all local. I mean, one question I have is sort of what budget do these guys get when they're choosing this menu? Well, Warren Buffett, Condoleezza Rice, Condoleezza Rice and Bill Gates are members of Augusta. I think Augusta will basically tell their past winners, it's whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. So on that basis, I mean, <laughs> once I get to the wine selection, that's when I really ramp it up. Some premium wines. Yeah. And then you also got to go as a Canadian with a poutine and you got to fancy it up a little bit. Okay. I mean, Scheffler, when he won, he didn't go fancy at all. No. I mean, he went barbecue, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, that, that could have been from a, a takeaway menu <laughs> and uh, wherever he's, it's from Texas sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just any sort of takeaway menu from Texas. He had mac and cheese. He did. It wasn't even like truffle mac and cheese. It was just regular. Just mac and cheese from <laughs> his own, you know, takeaway restaurant. So mine's going to be a wild mushroom poutine. So it's a gourmet twist on a Canadian classic. So for those who don't know, poutine is You've got fries and they're topped with um, cheese and gravy. I love it. If you see it on a menu anywhere, I recommend trying it. I think, you know, it's hard to replicate outside of Canada. The, it's just not the same unless you get the authentic, you know, the experts in Canada delivering <laughs> it. So um, keep that in mind if you're ever in Canada. In terms of a main, I think you go... Probably with a steak sort of thing. I okay. Don't, yep. Can't go wrong with that. Medium? Medium rare? Are you deciding this? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I mean, think you'd I would have go to decide. Rare. You're hosting Me the dinner. Medium rare. Closer to rare. Yep. Um, and then you get, you know, roasted vegetables, that sort of thing. Dessert, pumpkin pie would be my choice. Is that Canadian? I don't know if it's Canadian. It's definitely North American. Okay. Um, in terms of Canadians, you might also throw some butter tarts in there. That's definitely Canadian. Right. I've never seen them. I haven't had those in probably over a decade. So, Are there Canadian restaurants in Australia? I don't think there's such thing as a Canadian restaurant. I mean, I, I know in Bondi in Sydney, there's like a Canadian pub and they, they serve uh, poutine. But in terms okay. of like an actual cuisine... I don't think it necessarily exists. I mean, it's just sort of a combination with what standard American, yeah. North American, it sort of blends together. Right. I love that. That's um, that's a very extravagant menu. It's much more extravagant than what I was thinking. So if I was coming up with a master's dinner menu for my past champions, I'm going with a sort of a an Indian vibe, yep. some of the best dishes from India. Um you wouldn't have heard of half of these dishes, so it's going to be... But 
entrees might be a combination of things like masala dosa. Yep. Um, I'd have some charts, some street charts, so like bell puris, papadi charts, and then for mains, I'd have a selection of curries. So you'd have, you know, vegetarian curries and non-vegetarian curries for a lot of the golfers who probably are non-veg, butter chickens. Oh yeah. You know those Rogan Josh dishes. And then from a vegetarian perspective, parlic paneers, um, you know, some healthy options, dal, mixed vegetables. So I'm going a very Indian, a very Indian flavored masters tournament, which I don't think would, has ever been done. I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't, don't know if did, it has been. Vijay Singh won the masters, but he was a Fijian Indian. I'm, I mean, I might have to research what he did for yeah. his uh, when when he won and he hosted. And I'm curious. I mean, Hideki won, and his his menu is quite Japanese. And I wonder, do they bring in a, a chef that's you know got experience in those cuisines? I mean, for, surely they do. Yeah, I mean, I don't think someone in Augusta, Georgia, <laughs> is is whipping up an is authentic it, <laughs> sort of like fully understands you know how to the intricate nature of making sushi. Like yeah, uh, yeah. exactly. I think Hideki's uh, bringing in the big guns from J- Japan for that. But yeah, and I imagine, I mean, I, I like to imagine they yeah. bring in the best of the best for that stuff. They'd have to. I mean, they spend the most money on protecting their golf course. They're going to go all out for these dinners. So I initially thought, Christian, that we might look at disappointing performances. But the one thing I would say about disappointing performances in golf, golf is one of these weird sports where every star or superstar in the game almost disappoints every second tournament it is not possible to dominate and win every single tournament in golf because of how many strong athletes there are so it's almost it's almost very difficult to say that someone disappointed because you're not expected to win every year you're not expected to win every tournament and so i think it's hard to say well this person disappointed because you might disappoint in one tournament and then the next tournament you play you hit a hot streak and you're playing well. That happens to our golf game every week. Yeah, and I mean, your handicaps are based off of less than half of your scores. So eight of your last 20 rounds you're judged upon. And yet these professionals are based on every single round. Exactly. I mean, they're under tournament conditions, but again, that makes them even more challenging. And that's a really good point for people that didn't know. When you play in golf, if someone says, what's your handicap? The number you say is actually not the number that you hit every week. It's the number that you might hit once every four weeks because golf is the sport that measures your, uh, the handicap is your best, uh, like what you score on your best day. Yeah. And it's not what you score on your average day. What you might score on your average day might be six shots worse than your handicap. And so that's something that people need to appreciate when they play golf and they're talking about their handicap. Yes, someone could have a really low handicap and, you know, every other round is just a shocker. They're, you know, breaking 100 (laughs) and somehow every few rounds they pull something miraculous together. I've played with those players before. They they come in, they say, oh, my handicap's 9 or 10 and they shoot 100. I'm like, have you played this game before? (laughs) But that's how golf is. So I want to finish with this, Christian. It's... Just imagine it's, uh, you know, it's the year is 2059. Is, was Tiger's win in 40 years time? Will you be talking about it? Will you remember it? I think so. Um, and that's conditional on whether he wins another one, which, okay. I mean, if he wins another one, that certainly will be remembered. Yes. But 
I don't know if that's going to happen. But I, I do think, you know, he had his whole debacle, his whole life implode around him in, you know, late... Um, late 2009. Two, yeah. yeah, 2008, 2009. And then even after that, all the injuries, I'm yeah. not sure how many surgeries he's had, those sort of things. And for him to come back and win the most prestigious tournament... The one that if anyone asked him, if you could win one more again, which one would it be? I think, I mean, he, he does say he likes the Open a lot and there's probably arguably more history there. But I think in terms of prestige, it's yeah. it's the Masters that everyone really wants. I think even the purse, like the money that they win is less than some of the other majors. Yes. The Masters is the first tournament first major in the year but everyone wants to win it everyone primes themselves to play their best golf in that tournament and i think people will remember and i think it's a very good point that you raise about if it's the last major that he wins then definitely we will remember it very fondly i mean even if he won a pga or a us open i still think people will remember this because of the gap yeah you know, he hadn't won for a long time. And a lot of people are still talking about Jack Nicholas's 86 win. And that's almost 40 years on, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, when he won and he came over Norman. So I don't think it's that surprising that we might in a few more years, in 35 years time, say, hey, this, this Tiger win was probably one of the best wins of his career. Well, and I mean, that timing is likely going to be I mean, when's Tiger going to retire? Is he? Gonna I don't play? want him to retire. <laughs> <laughs> he won't play on the Champions Tour, I don't no, think. No, I think... No, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, in finishing, do you think he will come back to the sport? Does Can his body handle it? I've heard he's had another surgery specifically for him to be able to return. His ankle was giving him problems mostly recently, okay. and he had surgery, and apparently he wouldn't have had that surgery unless he was trying to make a comeback. But I mean, it just gets harder and harder each time. Exactly. I can't imagine, you know, what what that's like. But everyone's saying, just give him a cart. Yeah. Because it's just the walking, really, that is bothering him. Give him a cart. I mean, John Daly plays with the cart, doesn't he? Yeah, with sodas in it. Yeah. <laughs> John Daly's getting drunk on the course when he plays with the cart. But no, I agree. Hey, Christian... It has been a blast doing the Master 2019 with you. It brought back a lot of memories. I mean, this tournament was only four years ago, but it feels like it's a poignant moment in golfing history because of everything that came before it and after it in terms of Tiger's history, his legacy. It was great doing it with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I had a great time. Uh, Look forward to doing it again. That is it for this week's episode. Thanks again to my guest, Christian McDowell. Keep listening. We've got all different sports. If there's something you want me to talk about, just let me know. I love that listener feedback. I'll see you next week.